We are back on the official Sasta podcast with me, Harry Stebbings. It'd be great to see you behind the scenes on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs, where you can both ask questions for future shows and suggest guests. It'd be great to see you there. However, to the show today, and I'm very excited to welcome back a guest that I've wanted to have on the show for a very special round two for a long, long time. With that in mind, I'm excited to have Christoph Jans rejoin us in the hot seat today. Now, Christoph is the managing partner at Point Nine Capital, one of Europe's leading early stage funds, with a portfolio that includes the likes of Zendesk, Algolia, Delivery Hero, Revolut, Contentful, and many more incredible companies. And before that, he co-founded two internet startups, DealPilot.com in 1997 and PageFlakes in 2005. And then in 2008, Christoph became an angel investor and discovered Zendesk, Clio, FreeAgent, and his love for SaaS. Christoph's also the writer of the phenomenal blog, The Angel VC. It really is always a must-read for me. And if you haven't checked it out, then that really is a must, and the links can be found in the show notes. However, before we dive into the episode, Stay with Christoph. Thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Fapos. Fapos is a sports management platform that sports clubs, leagues, teams, and athletes use to enhance their sports experiences. More than 2,500 teams and 100,000 players use it for customizable sports websites, roster and schedule management, registrations, team communication, and more. Any team or player can focus on winning with Fapos, and you can learn more at fapos.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Fapos did, visit at wepay.com forward slash sasta i absolutely love wepay's really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments again that's wepay.com forward slash sasta and if trust is a core element of any business so is communication enter dialpad the startup that offers teams a better path to unified communications build your voice with a business phone system meetings call center and voice ai connecting your team across all existing devices and that's why over 50,000 of the world's most innovative companies choose dialpad from wework to uber to Stripe. And whether you're a one office company with less than 100 people, to the names listed above, Dialpad has got you covered. So put your team and communication first and head over to dialpad.com to find out more. But that's quite enough from me. So now I'm very excited to hand over to Christoph Jans, managing partner at Point Nine Capital. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Christoph, it's absolutely fantastic to have you on the show for a very special second time. So thank you so much for joining me again today, Christoph. Thanks for having me, Harry. It's great to be on your show again. Not at all. I've been stuck in the treasure chest that is your blog for the last few days. But I want to kick off with, for anyone that missed our first episode, how did you make your way into SaaS and really what I always call the wonderful world of VC? Yeah, sure. So I've been an entrepreneur for pretty much my entire life. I started trading Commodore C64 computer when I was 12, uh, built a mail order business during high school, started my first internet startup back in 1997, sold that company after a few years, started another one, sold that after a few years as well. And after that second exit in 2008, I was kind of looking for what's next. It wasn't quite clear to me if I should start another company or look for angel investments. And so I started to look around, browse the web for new ideas. And then I started stumbled on a, a website that looked interesting. It was a website that talked about Help Desk uh, 2.0. And, and Harry, you're probably too young for this, but around that time, everything had to be 2.0. So that was the Help Desk 2.0. And that website talked about making customer support better. And it had a large picture of a friendly Buddha smiling at you. And, and I thought that was interesting. So I reached out to the founders. And Harry, you probably know the rest of the story, but for everybody else, that company was Zendesk, which 
which at that time was a four-person startup, just getting started, didn't have an office yet, operating out of the loft in Copenhagen of one of the three co-founders. Today, Zendesk is one of the leading cloud-based software vendors for customer support, went public a couple of years ago and is worth a couple of billion dollars. So Zendesk is, is really what got me into SaaS. So if you talk about beginner's luck, it probably doesn't get much luckier than that. And during that experience, like after a couple of weeks or months of, of working with Zendesk, I started to look for companies, other SaaS companies with somewhat similar characteristics, mainly around the consumerization of enterprise software. So I made a couple of angel investments over the next three years or so. And, and then I finally teamed up with Pavel Rudzinski to raise a fund, Point9 Capital, and that's what I've been doing since. And what a journey it has been since. I do have to ask, though, Christoph, one question that I'm always fascinated by is you said there about kind of your entrepreneurial endeavors. You saw firsthand many boom and bust cycles in the market. How do you think seeing the boom and bust cycles of kind of the early 2000s and then 2008 informed how you think today when investing? Yeah, I think it probably does have an impact when you've seen some really high highs and then shortly afterwards some really low lows as far as like the level of, of enthusiasm or like the hype cycle is, is, is concerned. So maybe it makes people like me who are a bit older and have seen like the dot-com boom and, and bust maybe more a bit more skeptical when they see things like ICOs getting all the hype and so on. And maybe it also means that you get too cautious and then maybe younger people are better at spotting some of the greatest new opportunities because maybe you get a little bit more careful when you've seen some of these things. But overall, it's probably a helpful or, or valuable experience to have seen some of these cycles. For sure. I do want to break the show, though, up today into a couple of different but really aligned parts. So starting with a question that's always on the lips of founders and VCs being product market fit, then moving to that subsequent stage post product market fit, scaling the product market fit from there, and then finishing on your operations at point nine in a brilliant piece you recently wrote. Does that sound good? Sounds great. So I love the title of this. WTF is product market fit. I have so many founders say, you know, Jason Lemkin says it's 10 unaffiliated customers. Brad Feld says it's 500k in revenue. So what does product market fit really mean to you, Christoph? Yeah, I, I probably have a bit of a love-hate relationship with the term or concept of product market fit because on the one hand, it's incredibly important. And, and as you say, everybody says you need product market fit and, and that's true. And Mark Andreessen famously said that the only thing that really matters is product market fit and you should be obsessed about finding product market fit until you have it. So it's an incredibly important concept and it really defines a lot of what you should do, right? There is almost like a before product market fit phase and then once you have it phase and it determines a lot of the strategies and tactics that you have to apply. On the other hand, there is really no generally accepted definition of this. You already mentioned two definitions that may not be completely compatible or at least maybe similar, but not the same. And then there are other people like Paul Graham, who I think said product market fit simply means that you make stuff that people want and others have somewhat more sophisticated definitions. Um, I think Mark Andreessen said that product market fit is being in a good market with a product that can satisfy that market. And then I think you mentioned Brad Feld said you don't have product market fit until you have, I think, a half a million in ARR or something. So there is a pretty broad definition of, of product market fit. And so the term is maybe a bit overused and underdefined. 
and there is no about not just one correct definition of it. What I personally like is to define product market fit as having a product that solves a problem for a significant number of independent customers. So quite similar to how Jason put it when he says you need three, four, five independent customers. I think that's a pretty pragmatic and, and useful way of looking at it. Yeah, you said there about kind of significant number of customers and kind of the hallowed word for all VCs is often TAM, total addressable market. Mm. I'm interested, Christoph, to what extent does market size really play a role in your investment consideration today? It does play an important role for us because we, like pretty much all other investors out there, are aspire to invest in companies that eventually become very large. So we do look at market sizes whenever we consider making an investment. But at the same time, we're also aware that it's really, really hard to predict market sizes and it can be a pretty humbling experience. And for some of the best companies out there, maybe there was no market initially. Maybe they created their market, like if you think about Twitter or or Snap or maybe even some companies on the B2B SaaS side, such as Slack or UiPath, where arguably maybe there was no market or it would have been very hard to estimate. So we, we do look at the market size, but we try to be not too dogmatic or religious about only wanting to invest in companies that target a certain TAM because the TAM can just change so much over time. The best teams find ways to expand into new markets and so on and so forth. Going back to the product market fit element, we had Peter at Segment on the show recently and he suggested a kind of poignant catalytic moment when they realized that they had product market fit. It doesn't always seem to be the case that it's this one moment. How do you kind of think about product market fit as a single moment versus kind of a continuous evolution towards it? I actually saw a fantastic presentation of Peter Reinhardt at SaaS Talk in Dublin a few years ago where he described Segment's journey towards product market fit. And I think they've been trying various things for months, if not years, and they didn't really work out. And, and then suddenly they hit on something and he described it as if a landmine had exploded. And that was when they suddenly got to this incredibly strong product market fit. But I think this is an amazing experience for Peter and, and Segment. But in my experience, it's not the rule. It's more like the more the exception. I think it's much more typical that product market fit isn't that black and white and that it's more a gradual process and that you more like that you continuously increase the degree of product market fit. And it, it may not necessarily only go always upright. You might think to have product market fit and then things happen in the market. Maybe you lose some customers or there is a new competitor and then you are maybe less sure that you actually have product market fit. So I think it's very rare that it's so black and white as in the segment case and definitely made things very clear and easy for them and probably gave them a, a strong signal to say now it's really time to put the pedal <laughs> to the metal, fuel on the, the fire. Yeah. But, but I think most founders don't find themselves in the, that situation where it's so clear. It's more a search for product market fit that may take two or three years where you're not really sure um, how strong is your product market fit really. Now I'm going to ask a really unfair question here but, but I would love to hear your kind of thoughts and obviously we're going to take into account that all businesses are very 
very different and this doesn't encompass every business. But if we're looking at kind of data and measurements and assessing product market fit across different disciplines and metrics and taking three in particular, what kind of churn rate would suggest a positive uh, assessment towards the product market fit lens to you? Yeah, Harry, that's a really unfair question indeed. <laughs> it really depends, right? I think it's hard to generalize. It depends on various factors and it starts with a question like how qualified are the prospect and then the customers that you onboard in, in the first place. So I, I will mention some numbers because you ask for it, but I think you really have to take them with a big grain of salt. I, I would say as far as churn is concerned, if you're in enterprise SaaS and you only look at the really properly onboarded customers, I think the churn rate for them should be pretty close to zero. If you're in SMB SaaS, then it's it's always somewhat higher. It might be one or 1.5% per month just because SMBs go out of business at a certain rate, maybe 10% per year or so. Then I also mentioned properly onboarded customers because your churn rate might be higher if maybe you have some customers among your customer base which shouldn't have been customers in the first place because maybe there is no great fit between what they need and, and what your product offers. So I think the churn rate in the first couple of months of the lifetime of your customers can be higher until you really figured out what the ideal customer looks like and you only get this type of customer. So I think in the beginning, when you look at the churn on a cohort basis, then I think it's not too worrying if there is a drop off during the first one, two, three months or so. But then if you look at all those customers that survive the first couple of months, then I think you should expect that most of them really stick around. Again, another very unfair one. A lot of founders kind of assimilate product market fit to where they are in terms of MRR. And they often actually have the two questions and they say, what sort of MRR suggests product market fit? And then also uh, maybe one which, again, is very challenging, but what sort of MRR suggests a Series A raise today and that graduation from seed to A? How do you think about kind of MRR in relation to those two? I think it's really difficult because you might get to hundreds of thousands of ARR, like tens of thousands of MRR, without having product market fit if, if the founders are great salespeople. Like you just sell to clients whatever they want and you somehow manage to get away with it and you deliver a product that might need a lot of customization and so on. So I, I think it's almost impossible to say this is the how much MRR you need and then you know you have product market fit. As a maybe very, very general rule of, of thumb, I would maybe say that maybe just in terms of the order of magnitude, if you are going after what we tend to call like the rabbits types of customers or deer, then maybe that's around 10K of MRR. If you are, however, aiming for like these large customers, which we tend to call elephants or, or whales, then that number might be significantly higher because product market fit requires some degree of repeatability. And if one customer is worth hundreds of thousands of dollars in ACV and you, you think you need a couple of them to know that you have product market fit, then you obviously get to a higher number. Absolutely. I mean, now I've grilled you enough so unfairly, I, I would love to discuss the phase post-product market fit. So assuming that we have that kind of critical stage, when speaking to Series B or C investors, a lot ask the fundamental question. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the fundamental question is and what they really mean by it. So I think it's very different if you compared Series A and Series B. At the Series B and later rounds, I think it's all about scaling and about the confidence that a company is able to scale, meaning scaling customer acquisition, but also meaning 
training, scaling the organization and, and everything that, that comes with that. So at the Series B and maybe even more so at the Series C level, I think VCs want to understand your customer acquisition channels, your CACs, your payback ratios, lifetime values, and all of these great metrics and want to get a sense for whether you have something that is repeatable and whether you have channels that you can scale. On the other hand, I think at the Series A level, I think sometimes the Series A can have more like the characteristics of a seed round. It depends on obviously the type of investor, but just the level of proof that Series A investors want to see at that stage is just much, much lower. So it's more about getting some confidence of product market fit. Again, hard to define, but Series A investors usually want to get some proof that there is product market fit. And for some investors, that means they want to see something in the order of a million or one and a half million in ARR, but not for everybody. It greatly also depends on the founding team and the track record of the founding team and the size of the opportunity and, and all of these factors. So I think at the Series A level, it can sometimes be somewhat more qualitative, whereas starting from the Series B, it becomes much more qualitative and metrics driven. You said that about kind of the scaling of customer acquisition cost. I was with the founder the other day and he said that if I spend 10K, then I get 100 leads. So if I spend 100K, I'll get 1,000 leads. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this and maybe the dangers and inherent challenges around this. Yes, I think in what you just described, the ability to scale your budget by 10X and then also get 10X the amount of customers is actually very rare in B2B SaaS. For a consumer internet business, like let's say an e-commerce business, I think this is more frequent because you can do mass market advertising, maybe TV ads, ads whatever. But in, in B2B SaaS, I think it's pretty rare that you can so easily scale advertising budgets. And the reason for that is that almost naturally when you start, you capture the lowest hanging fruits first. So you get the warmest leads first because those are the ones that are actively looking for whatever you offer. You get the cheapest keywords to start with. So I think that makes it very hard to extrapolate from the results of the early paid advertising trials that, that you might make as a founder. You said about the warmth of the leads there. You also said before that making outbound sales work is an indicator of maybe a scalable customer acquisition. It's also kind of expensive and timely. You've seen many successful businesses scale their outbound sales. What have been your learnings on, on making outbound successful and why it presents such a scalable acquisition channel? I'm actually not sure if we've seen so many companies make it work. I think it's pretty hard to make it work. If we talk about like the low-hanging fruits, then I think outbound is actually a very high-hanging fruit. So it's very difficult, but that also means that if you can crack it, then you potentially or probably have a highly scalable channel because if you are able to cold call prospects and turn them into customers, then you can basically call up every potential customers on the planet, right? So it, it can be highly scalable, but it's just really, really hard to make it work economically. So it's usually not something which I would recommend an early stage SaaS founder to do as one of the first things. I think it's usually something that you should consider doing when you are starting to exhaust other channels, but it should also never be your only customer acquisition channel. I think if you get really no inbound interest and no organic demand for the product, then, then I would be concerned that product just isn't great enough and that, that customer acquisition in, in the end will be too expensive. 
a final question before we discuss kind of point nine and, and the recent mm. fantastic blog post. You mentioned there about kind of scaling outbound. I often meet a lot of founders who want to scale outbound on the enterprise side, but often obviously there's the long payback period for the enterprise kind of sales cycles. And they suggest about kind of doing SMB and smaller deals in that meantime. How do you think about doing both at the same time, the kind of effectiveness of it and the concerns for the founder of the long payback period if doing enterprise only? I think from most founders or most SaaS companies, I think they are probably better off if they if they have quite a lot of clarity on the type of customer that they serve. Again, coming back to these animals metaphors that, that we like so much, if you only serve either like the rabbit type customers or the deer or the elephants, because it has so many implications on how you run the entire company, on your cost basis and how you do what language you use on your website and how you do marketing and sales. So if you try to sell to tiny customers and large customers at the same time, that can add a lot of complexity and, and make things more difficult. I would, however, say that there are definitely exceptions to this general rule. And I think one exception are companies often that have a product addressing developers, because then you often have this situation that developers are the people who first discover the product and maybe you have a free plan for them or a very cheap entry-level plan. But then eventually you get into a larger enterprise and like Algolia from our portfolio would be a great example for a company that has been very successful like this and which is now generating a significant share of their revenue from large customers, but they're still a product that is loved by developers. So, so they managed to make that work. And then obviously like Slack would be another great example of, of a company that is managing to serve a large variety of different types of customers at once. But I think unless there are strong reasons for that strategy or unless you feel a really strong pull from the market to serve various types of customers, you're probably better off simplifying things a little and, and really focusing on a customer segment that is not too wide. You mentioned your portfolio in Algolia there. I do want to mm. touch on, before we move into the quick mm. fire, point nine today, you recently wrote the fantastic blog post about kind of making VC more human. And you did a great survey on European fundraising for founders and the experience. And you found kind of that founders were still frustrated with the process. So what were the commonalities, Christoph, in terms of their biggest frustrations? So we did a survey, I think it's been like, I don't know, maybe one or two years ago or so already, where we asked founders to rank the various things that they don't like about fundraising. Because our experience is still that fundraising is can, can still be a, a major distraction, if not pain in the ass for founders, because it just takes so much time away from the real business and there were several things which founders don't like about fundraising one is that it just takes so much time and you often don't know where you are in the process i think that was probably the number one thing which people pointed out that they talked to a lot of vcs and then people fail to close the loop and you just you follow up and you just don't know where you are so i think that is one thing and another yeah another thing is like having to deal with complicated term sheets, due diligence checklists, legal contracts, all that legal side of fundraising is something which founders tend to hate because I think they rightfully don't see a lot of value in that. And then another factor, and I think this is something which we addressed in this recent initiative and blog post that you mentioned, I think this is not something we asked about in the survey some years ago, but which we also know is an issue that founders are worried what their existing investors do like are they 
going to participate in the next round of funding or not? And if not, what kind of signals does that send to the next round investor? So those are some of the things that we tried to address in the initiative that you were referring to. Christoph, you're making my life incredibly easy there by saying about the previous round investors following on, because you said in the post that you'll always do your pro rata. Talk to me about the thinking behind this and how it maybe affects your thesis on reserve allocation. So for everybody who hasn't read that blog post, what we decided to do was that we announced and, and made a pledge that we will just always do our pro rata in a series A for all of the seed investments that we're doing from now on. It may not actually have such a dramatic impact on our reserve allocation because in most cases we would probably have done the, the follow-on investment anyway even without that pledge. I mean, we're now a bit more careful to make sure that we reserve enough money to fulfill that pledge but it doesn't make a, a huge difference. So I think it's really mainly about the peace of mind that we're uh, helping to create here for the founders. Just having the certainty because maybe we will do our pro rata in 90% of the cases anyway because we want it. But as a founder, until the round is done, you may not know that this is the case. I mean, you may not know that you are in fact in the 90% bucket and not in the 10%, 10% bucket. So our intention was really to just take one topic off the table because we think there are enough topics which you have to worry about as a, as a founder as you go through that process. And, and, and frankly, it also makes our life a little bit easier because we don't have to debate these decisions anymore. We have a default now and whenever a company goes on to, the, to raise a Series A, you don't even have to debate, debate it internally anymore. You mentioned debate there. I'm playing slight devil's advocate here, Christoph, mm -hmm. but there is the caveat that only if the round is done by a legitimate A round investor is this the case of kind of certain follow-on. Most often, though, with these rounds with legitimate A round investors, actually, the founders don't need it, and often the A round investors want to maximize their ownership as much as possible. So I'm intrigued. Is this caveat not a slight contradiction in the case? It's true that in some cases, even though we commit to doing our pro rata and, and want to do it, maybe it's hard for us to do it because maybe the new investor in, in some of these very hot rounds maybe feel like they, there is not enough volume and they want to try to reduce the allocation to the existing investor. So I think in, in the cases where things go really well, it's true, then there it's that commitment isn't, isn't really needed. But I think it helps founders in the beginning because at that time they don't know yet if they are going to be one of these hot companies where there is too much money rather than too little on the table. On your point about being legitimate A-round investors, there is actually, it's not like we have strings attached there or a footnote with like your other qualifications or of uh, what a Series A investor should look like. So we will do this regardless of the quality of the Series A investor. It's not like this has to be uh, tier one or some other kind of definition. And, and we will also do it like regardless of the performance of the company and how bullish we are. So the only thing that we said there was it should be an externally led A round. So if it's some weird financing, like whatever, like a government loan or an internal bridge for a few hundred thousand, that that is not an A round. So that is the only thing that we wanted to make, make clear. But other than that, there are really are no, no strings attached. That's the whole idea around it. I love it. Now that clarifies that for me. In terms of the step further into the weeds, there's the term sheet and it's often immensely confusing for founders. And you've standardized and published yours. Why do VCs sometimes have very long and complex term sheets, Christoph? It's, it maybe seems unnecessary to have 10 to 12 pages. Yeah, I think there probably is no good reason for that. I think it 
it's maybe more like a historic reason that maybe years ago or decades ago, VCs used that to basically maybe just use the leverage, which back in those times they had, at least in Europe, to secure rights which go beyond what you should get as, an, as a VC. I think a certain amount of detail in a term sheet might be reasonable because you want to be clear that if you sign a term sheet, both sides really know what they get because the last thing you want is sign a term sheet and then later on the deal doesn't get through because maybe there was a misunderstanding. So I don't blame any VC who has a term sheet that has a, a couple of pages instead of maybe just one or two. But it shouldn't be 10 pages and it shouldn't be super complicated. It doesn't have to be written in a language that only lawyers understand. So I think it's about finding the right balance between making sure that the key provisions are in there so that both sides know what they're getting, but at the same time, just trying to uh, avoid making it unnecessarily complicated. Good. I'm thrilled I was not the only one struggling with the complexity of some term sheets. Uh, but I would love to move into my favorite of any interview being the 60-second SASTA. So as you know, I say a short statement and you give me your immediate thoughts. How does that sound? I will give it a try. I will do my best. So what does it take to start in Europe and make it big in the US? As a founder, right, you have to be really super committed. I mean, every founder has to be incredibly driven and committed to building a successful company. But for European founders who want to make it in the US, I would say the bar is even higher. Because if you look at, for example, the founders of Zendesk or Algolia, they, they took their families and moved them from Europe to the US. So that's a huge step which requires a, a lot of conviction and commitment and a very strong desire to really build a very large and successful company. And I think you also have to be just incredibly smart and, and fast learning because thing, some things work differently in the US. So you have to be able to adapt to that and, and be able to really survive in that hyper-competitive environment. What are the most common mistakes that CEOs make in the scaling process? I think maybe the most common mistake is maybe trying to scale too early, like trying to hire too many salespeople before you maybe have a product that is worth selling or before you figured out the first sales yourself. So I would say that's probably the most common mistake. And then maybe underestimating how long it takes to build a team, let's say on the sales side, like basically how much lead time you need to find the right salespeople, train them, make them effective. Basically, if you want to, if you have a certain goal of your sales targets for 12 months from now, and then you try to work your way backwards there, then I think if, if you don't really do this very carefully, I think you can easily end up in a situation where you realize you're missing your targets, but it's way too late to address that because you should have hired more people months ago. And then maybe the last thing I would add, and this is also a topic that I, I feel very strongly about and wrote a blog post about that if you don't really invest in people enough early enough, one of the things that we see that differentiate experienced serial entrepreneurs from first-time entrepreneurs is that the experienced people hire a dedicated full-time HR person like a head of talent or head of HR or chief people officer or whatever the title might be much earlier than the less experienced ones because they know that a person like this can really be almost like the magical secret weapon who can help the CEO scale in a much better and much faster way. What would you most like to change in the world of SaaS today? That's a good question, Harry. I'm not sure. I think we live in a pretty good world and, and time to start a SaaS company. 
Uh, there are so many APIs and tools and building blocks that you can use. So I think it's a pretty good time to start and scale a SaaS company. Maybe if I could change something or have a have a wish, I don't know, maybe it would be that there are more better financing options for those SaaS companies that are not on the unicorn path, if you want to put it that way. As you know, VCs, and I don't exclude uh, ourselves from that, is the everybody is focused on these gigantic outliers, on these very, very rare outcomes. But I think for every SaaS company that can get to a billion dollars in eventual valuation, there are probably 10 that can get to 100 million and maybe 100 that can get to 10 million or tens of millions. So there can be lots of great, profitable, viable businesses which are worth pursuing, but which don't produce the kind of returns which make sense for venture capitalists. And I think there is an increasing supply of capital for this type of company from PE investors and different types of investors. And it seems like this is getting started now, or we're seeing more and more of that. And this is something which I hope we'll see more of because that is, I think, a difficulty for SaaS founders who are building great companies, but not the type of companies that just doubles or triples for many years in a row. Should early stage companies take multi-stage VC fund money? My, my answer to this might sound a little bit self-serving because we, as you know, we're an early stage fund. We were exclusively focused on seed early stage in investments. I think in most cases, the answer to your question is no. I think there might be exceptions, but in most cases, if you are a seed stage startup and you're raising half a million or a million, then it's not a great idea to take this check from a fund that is managing hundreds of millions or maybe a billion or several billions, because it's unlikely that you will really get the same attention like a company where that fund puts in 10 million, 20 million, 30 million. So all the great benefits that some of these large funds have, you will probably not get them if you are just an investment, which from their perspective is really tiny. So you are kind of like an optionality ticket in most of these cases. And then you have the signaling risk, what happens when you raise the next round and the market knows that this was just an optionality ticket and the market kind of expects that if things go decently well, that investor will take the lead in the next round. So I'm sure there are exceptions, but usually I think it's a good idea to choose an investor where there's a fit between what they typically do in terms of the stage and the stage that you are currently in. I also think, especially for maybe slightly less funded ecosystems like the UK and, and Europe in general, it also often takes out kind of the biggest prices up of the next round, obviously, because they're disincentivized to price it up. I think that's often something that's not considered enough. I do yeah. want to finish, though, on what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning, Christoph? So this can be the beginning of your entrepreneurial career. It could be the beginning of your angel investing or the beginning of point nine, but the beginning mm -hmm. of dot, dot, dot. I think like when I started with SaaS investing, then it was probably quite helpful that I didn't know so much about SaaS because all the investors who knew a lot about enterprise software at that time, a lot of them looked at Zendesk in the early days and passed on it because there were lots of good reasons why this wouldn't work. So I think a certain amount of naivete that I had was probably useful. But if I think about like, what do I wish I, I had known, then maybe it's just like the knowledge or the experience that what it really looks like to what massive success looks like. The, the companies that I started before I became an investor had various degrees 
of success, like lots of complete failures and then one or two companies that had a decent level of success, but nothing even remotely close to the order of magnitude of the success of, of Zendesk. So I never experienced that kind of growth and, and that kind of ambition. And so maybe if I had, had known that, yes, it's actually possible to create a company that gets to 100 million in revenues within a couple of years and that eventually becomes worth billions of dollars, that would probably have helped me maybe make some better decisions at the time. Well, Christoph, as you can tell, I've so enjoyed having you back on the show. So thank you so much for joining me again today. Thank you very much to you, Harry. I have to say, it's always such a pleasure to have Christoph on the show and such a fantastic chat there. If you'd like to see more from Christoph, you can find him on his blog, The Angel VC, or on Twitter, at Creature. Likewise, it'd be great to see you behind the scenes here at Sasta. You can find us on Instagram at hdebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, thanks to my friends at WePay, let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, Fapos. Fapos is a sports management platform that sports clubs, leagues, teams, and athletes use to enhance their sports experiences more than 2,500 teams and 100,000 players use it for customizable sports websites, roster and schedule management, registrations, team communication, and more. Any team or player can focus on winning with Thapos, and you can learn more at thapos.com. And to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, like Thapos did, visit wepay.com forward slash Sasta. I absolutely love WePay's really smart cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash Sasta. And if trust is a core element of any business, so is community. Communication. Enter Dialpad, the startup that offers teams a better path to unified communications. Build your voice with a business phone system, meetings, call center, and voice AI, connecting your team across all existing devices. And that's why over 50,000 of the world's most innovative companies choose Dialpad, from WeWork to Uber to Stripe. And whether you're a one-office company with less than 100 people, to the names listed above, Dialpad has got you covered. So put your team and communication first and head over to dialpad.com to find out more. As always, I so appreciate all your support and I cannot wait to bring you a very special episode next week.